Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Mark Rubberg, Managing Director at Stage 2 Capital and former Chief Revenue Officer at HubSpot. In this episode, we talked about the strengths of a successful CRO, the growth phases of a company's life cycle, and why retention is the one metric that defines product market fit. We also discussed the pillars of a good go-to-market strategy, how HubSpot discovered their key leading indicators for customer retention in the early days, and more. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the show. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a pleasure having you today, Mark. I think for the listeners, Mark is the Managing Director at Stage 2 Capital, uh, the go-to-market venture capital fund that invests and helps companies scale sustainable revenue and healthy ARR. Prior to Stage 2 Capital, Mark was the Chief Revenue Officer at HubSpot, where over nine years, he grew the sales and service team from one to 425 employees. It helps the expanded annualized revenue grow from zero to $100 million and the customer base from zero to 10,000 plus customers. Mark is also a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. And so my first question for you, Mark, is what is the main strength that good CRO needs to have to be successful in your opinion? Hmm, depends on the stage. Um, you know, in the early stages, it's very much hiring and, um, hiring and coaching. Um, And as you grow, it's really setting up the process around that. Um, I think, though, as we as the CRO sort of title becomes more popular, and if we're talking about, say, a business that at least tens of millions of dollars and at least like 50 to 100 employees, um, they're really there to create a seamless experience for the customer. They're, They're the one person that's that's over. Normally, when it's implemented, they're overseeing both marketing, sales, and customer success. And as a company scales, it's, it's typical that those organizations start to be a bit siloed and, and tend to solve their processes for their domain. Yeah. But when you look at it from the viewpoint of the customer, it feels very disjointed. And so the CRO, uh, one of their primary roles should be to, you know, to create a seamless process uh, for the customer uh, on that journey. To be the glue. 
Yeah, I definitely see there's all a lot of different companies you've been speaking to. Uh, there definitely is a big silo in like marketing and sales being one of those big areas where there's always sort of this battle between like, are we bringing you in the right leads? Are we bringing good traffic versus are we closing uh, deals? And uh, sometimes I think the customer maybe gets forgotten in this whole process and how do you ensure you have a good experience there? Yeah, um, and even like the customer success piece is mo- is almost more important. Like, you know, lots of times where all these companies are just tracking toward revenue and marketing is measured by appointments and they measure the quality of their appointments based on what closes to revenue quickly. Like what's an MQL? What's a good MQL? A good MQL is for a lead that closes a high rate. I think that's completely wrong. That's completely wrong. Like that's, it's, it's really, you have to get down to the, the highest conversion to lifetime value. You know, you got to measure it that way. And so it needs to start with the customer success when we think about instrumenting these, these functions. Yeah, you mentioned as well, sort of like the stages of growth, and depending on uh, the role, at what like sort of responsibilities the CRO has. Um, we chatted just before the show. Like, I think you have an excellent framework and talking sort of about the different stages of growth and what actual growth means. Like, maybe you can just talk us through the different phases that you see in a company's life cycle and what are the most important stages of growth. Uh, we can dive into a few aspects of that. Yeah, I mean, this is an area that I've been doing a lot of work in um, yeah. just because I've I've been a bit perplexed on why so many companies flatline and some become unicorns and this work came out of quite a few observations within that that domain and um, basically it's I find most businesses they're like well when do you when is it time to scale they say when we have product market fit but when we don't have a consistent view on what product market fit is. Like you ask 10 people, it's 10 different things. And oftentimes it's super subjective, like having a workable product in a big market. I think that's pretty bad (laughs) as as like defined. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is when we do think we have product market fit, the way people approach scale is like mass hiring a salespeople the next month, like 10 reps in the next month. And that's just, I've seen it tried 50 times. I've seen it fail 50 times. I mean, it's just like, I don't know why every entrepreneur and investor is obsessed with scaling that way. But th- yeah. those are the issues that I've been trying to bring to the table. So the three-pronged sequential framework is true product market fit, go-to-market fit, and then growth and moat. And so when, when we, if we tackle this sort of product market fit question first, like, well, what is product market fit? You know, again, like a workable product in a big market, that's, it's just too subjective for me. Yep. Um, you've seen some things where it's like when you survey your customers and 40% say they can't live without your product. Well, we're getting there. At least that's quantifiable. But like we all know that surveys, I mean, I just interviewed one of our LPs, Layla, who's a CMO at SurveyMonkey last week. And, you know, it's just, surveys are great, but they're just really hard to um, they're really hard to architect in a way that doesn't yield a false, false positive result. And naturally here, like, of course, people are going to say they love your product. Could have without. They just feel bad for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so I don't, I get, I just, for such a big decision, I, I, I struggle with that approach. Okay. So for me, the one metric that I think determines product market fit is, is churn. So this is a great podcast for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's retention, right? It's, yeah. it's, it just makes total sense. They've experienced your product, your people, your offering, the promise your salespeople made and whether that came true and they decided to repurchase, whether that's a subscription or more stuff from you. The problem with that approach is it takes oftentimes a year to know. 
Right. Like the, the customers we acquire today. So, so it basically comes down to a leading indicator of customer attention. And that's something I don't find the ecosystem talking enough about. I think that's one of the most important founder CEO decisions we make and the pursuit of scale is what is our leading indicator to customer attention. So I've been doing decent amount of work in there and um, have, a, have a, a structure of it that I think um, is a guide for people, which is um, it's when P percent of customers achieve E event within T time. Okay, so a little too like programming geeky there. Yeah. Um, but I'd to bring that to us. life, yeah. yeah, let's let's walk through like examples. So Slack, eighty percent of customers send more than two thousand T messages in thirty days. Okay, follow the same format, P E T, right? Dropbox, eighty-five percent of customers share one file on one device within one hour. Okay. Um, HubSpot, I know this is, so but by the way, I've done a bunch of reading and talking to the team and those are relatively close for those companies. Um, HubSpot, I know is absolutely accurate. And we studied this like data scientist craziness. Um, so uh, 80% or sorry, 70% of customers use five out of 25 feature platform um, within, uh, within 60 days, right? So those are much better definitions of product market fit. When those things happen, we have product market fit. That's, that, I feel like that's leaps and bounds yeah. ahead of like a survey or like a good. So that, that's step number one. And that has a profound impact on the go-to-market decisions in terms of our team and how we measure them and how, how we comp them and the type of customers we bring on and all this kind of stuff, right? So once we have that, then we move to go-to-market fit. And notice in product market fit, I said nothing about scalability and profitability. Like yeah. it's all, you know, That's it's all like do unscalable things, right? Do unscalable things, throw everything in the kitchen sink at it. But now go to market fit, it's do it scalably. All right. So you, you proved in product market fit that when we acquire a bunch of customers, the large majority of them are going to hit that leading indicator. You're going to create customer value consistently. Yeah. In go to market fit, it's doing that scalably. And in our world, Andrew, that you live in and I live in with subscription, we talk about unit economics. We talk about LTV to CAC of three. We talk about payback period of 12 months or less. Yeah. Again, the problem, those numbers don't serve us for a year. Exactly. We sign up a bunch of customers today in June. We don't know for a year what the payback is on that effort, right? Yeah. So we need to seek the leading indicator. That's easier to do. It's algebraic. We basically have to take this LTV to CAC target of three and extract it back to how many meetings do we need this week? What's the conversion from meeting to opportunity to customer? What's the average spend per customer? What's the average sales cycle? We could, it's, an, it's an Excel model. Model, yeah. And we can then say, as long as we hit these targets, the LTV to CAC of three will spit out, right? And so, so we have to instrument things back and start practicing. And that, when we're in this stage, it's a totally different set of strategic decisions from go-to-market to achieve go-to-market fit. And then once we have those two things, we've got our leading indicator of customer attention, our leading indicator of unit economics, that becomes our speedometer to tell us how fast we can go. So once we move into the final stage of growth and moat, it's not hire 10 reps tomorrow and cross our fingers to see what happens. It's establishing a pace. It's, it's hire one rep, one rep a month for five months and let's watch the speedometer. If it stays green, let's go to two a month. If it stays green, let's go to four a month. Let's go to eight a month. If it goes to red, let's diagnose 
and figure out why. And the nice thing about that is most companies' speedometers today is their P&L. And their P&L is what happened six months ago and not what's happening right now. Yep. And so this, this speedometer approach gives us insight into the health of our business and its ability to, to increase scale today, not what was happening six months ago. Absolutely. I love that sort of uh, really systematic approach uh, to it. And I think often, like you mentioned, the first lean leading academetric, something we talk about a lot on the show that obviously churn and retention, it's a really lagging metric and it's influenced by so many different inputs that have happened throughout the customer's life cycle. Ultimately, what you're going back to is that as long as you have a problem that you're solving for a customer and your product is delivering that solution, ultimately people shouldn't be churning. So the, the best form of product market fit and measuring it is really knowing that people are sticking around and paying and then really trying to figure out what's that leading indicator. So I'm interested in your process in that you have a formula now for the leading indicator itself, but how did you go about, for example, you have a much better view site at HubSpot, like what was the process that went behind it? What was the research that went into the team that actually came up oh, yeah. first number and how did you go about Ridiculous it? Ridiculous amounts. Ridiculous yeah. amounts. So we had caught it late because, you know, we were in the early, um, cohort of SaaS businesses, right? Like it took us like two or three years to realize that churn is the most important metric in our company. And it was, again, it just because SaaS was new. Um, And so once we did, we, we, we sought out this leading indicator. And fortunately at that time, unlike, you know, earlier stage businesses, when you should be instrumenting this, I mean, I think we had like 10,000 customers, you know what I mean? So we just had a ton of data points and I think the data science team established like 30 theories. <laughs> is, it, is it like, is it when they, they set up the product in a week? Does that matter? Is it that they, their lead flow doubled? Does that matter? Right? So they just tested it by, you know, and this is what you need to do when you create yours is you don't have to wait a year for it to check out to move forward, but you do after a year want to make sure, just verify whether or not your lead indicator actually does predict retention. Right. Yeah. So it's a pretty simple analysis. The way I like to do it is I just take my customers that I acquired 12 to 18 months ago. Right. So let's say we acquired 60 customers um, with between 12 and 18 months ago. Yeah. And let's say like six of them churned and, and 54 are still around. OK, so it's not, that's probably like a 90 percent retention rate. And so what I want to do is I want to look at like how many of those customers um, hit the leading indicator of customer attention. So let's say that 50 hit it and how many didn't 10 didn't. And then what's the retention rate of the ones that did. And what's the retention rate of the ones that didn't. So if the retention, the one rates of the ones that did is like 96% and the retention rate of the ones that didn't is like 50%. Damn, you nailed it. You know, it and you, you've understand something super deep, profound and valuable about your business. So that's essentially what we did was we just studied those cohorts and studied a whole bunch of different things, like how fast they set up lead flow. Um, and it just so happened to be that it was if they were using lots of features, five out of 25. And then we were like, duh, that makes total sense. And that's one of the um, criteria that I advise people on when they're defining their E event, right? What is it? What is the what indicator is if it can be correlated to your unique, unique value proposition, that's really powerful. And if you think about you know, HubSpot, um, we were competing against the point solutions. If you want a blog, get WordPress. If you want social media tool, get Hootsuite. If you want email, get MailChimp. But if you want like a 
a marketing system where those tools talk to each other and benefit from each other, yeah. then we will be, we are differentiated there. And so it made total sense that like, if someone was using this for one feature, super churn risk, but if there are five or more, that's this all in one value prop is, is where we sit. So basically it's really a, a lot of work goes into trying to understand what business and just looking at the multiple different options of what your customers actions were taken and what led to them being retained. And really, so you, you're focusing on a healthy cohort that's gone 12 months uh, and still retained with you. But I think the key to it is what you mentioned was looking at how many people have done the action and still retained versus how many people didn't do the action and still retained and getting both viewpoints to see how strong of a metric they are uh, was the key for us, I think, to figuring it out. Totally. Yeah. And then, so we talk about sort of product market fit then once you have like that leading indicator, what's helping you out with uh, retention and uh, that's a metric then like internally in the company, you want to line behind and start getting everybody working towards those goals. So as a chief revenue officer, like what are you doing to try and keep the team aligned and focused when it comes to uh, these metrics and uh, how are you setting targets for the teams to make sure that they're working together? Yeah. So, I mean, usually, uh, you know, what we took at HubSpot and what I, what I do with a lot of our companies is uh, the use of a service level agreement, you know, and that's something that's become popularized to keep, keep people aligned. And, um, you know, obviously this SLA service level agreement was uh, kind of grew out of the um, uh, like the hosting company world where it's like we guarantee 99.9999% yeah. like uptime. Um, and it's really just like, you know, trying to get away from like subjective responses, like the leads suck or the salespeople can't close. You know, what I mean, it's like that's just a mess, right? So, yeah. So that's what you know, trying to get it down to a pre pre uh, you know previously agreed upon targets. And so, if we break those down, like we can give two examples on like the marketing and the sales side. For marketing. Um, you know, I, I do feel like one of the mistakes there is um, like sales just want something handed to them on a platter. You know, we've all had that experience where like that lead showed up and just bought yeah. and sales was like, why can't they all be like that? It's like, dude, if that was the case, we wouldn't need a sales team. You know what I mean? It's like, right. So, so sometimes the bar for marketing is way too high. The other mistake that I find is um, I find that in general, we in the industry put too much focus on the role of the lead as opposed to the company quality. Um, you know, I would much rather have like a low level manager come into my funnel from a perfect fit company than the CEO of a Metza Metza fit company. You know what I mean? And so, cause especially as a seller, like even though that low level manager from a great company is not a buyer, um, they clearly like came into our funnel with some level of interest that I can, I can chat with them about and then use them as an internal coach to find out what the decision makers are thinking about. Yeah. Um, so, so that's really where I like to focus um, the marketing SLA is a discussion around just to keep it simple, like tier A, tier B and tier C in terms of companies. Like, can we list out what tier A would look like? Is it, if it's, if we're, if we're in like a, big enterprise situation, it may just be named accounts, in which case we're doing account-based marketing. If it's more of like a transactional funnel, it could be like verticals, for example, or it could be something around employee size, yeah. um, perhaps location, like if we're only doing US right now. So I can come up with my ABC targets. 
And then I can come up with my ABC engagement. Like A might be like they request a demo, B might be they download an e ebook, and C might be they subscribe to the blog. And there could be a list of things in there. And now I've got a nine by nine, a three by three matrix, and I can assign um, sort of revenue values to the leads within that matrix. And now I'm, I have a much more sophisticated discussion with marketing, which is not like, hey, generate a bunch of leads. And no, it's more like, here's your target on what we're looking for in leads. And here's how much dollar value credit you get for yeah. each of these boxes. So I essentially put marketing on a revenue quota, which is pretty profound, right? And then sales, like the big problem there is like the, the, the speed, frequency, and efficiency by which they call leads. Okay, like we've... There's been plenty of studies, probably starting with insidesales.com, that show that if you call a lead within two minutes, your likelihood of success is like 10 times higher than if you wait an hour and like 10,000 times higher if you wait a day. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many organizations I've walked into and like, just like, hey, one question for you before we meet next time. Can you just check out the leads you created last month? What was the average time of the first call? Yeah. Last month, someone told me 16 days. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like that, that's such an, it's not an easy thing to operationalize, but it's, it's a lot easier than training your sales team on like a methodology. Just call your leads exactly. fast. And the other thing is like, if you call a lead once, you're, you're the, the industry data, I think I said, I think shows a 33% connect rate. If you call a lead six times, it shows a 90% connect rate but something around 40% of leads are only called once, right? So this is starting to give us some criteria around the sales SLA. Yeah. And, and so I really just dashboard that stuff. I'm just, it's pretty simple. Just create one, one chart, like show me all leads that are, you know, greater than five hours, you know, each day, like maybe we should do it daily. Show me all leads that are greater than eight hours old and haven't been called. Just show them, show me by a rep. So I know what's going on. Show me all leads that are greater than two weeks old and have been called less than three times. A very simple thing to dashboard. And so now you can send both those charts out to the whole sales and marketing team to show daily accountability to one another. I love that. Uh, and I think it makes total sense as well. Like from a psychological perspective, if I'm coming to your product and I want to make a purchase and I get a response immediately, as opposed to like a day later, an hour later, like already my excitement for your product and service is waning and my interest and my attention span is going day by day. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like even two hours later, you've done five other things. The only question that we, we get there, Andrew, that you have to be a little careful on is when you call the lead, there's a really bad approach when you do that and a really good approach. Yeah. So if, if you download one of my eBooks, Andrew, and I call you up and say, Hey, Andrew, um, saw you came into the funnel. Um, can I book a demo with you? That is going to blow up in your face. Yep. Makes sense. It's like, dude, I just downloaded this ebook. Like what the heck's going on? Versus if you download the ebook and I call you up a minute later and say, Hey, Andrew, notice you downloaded our ebook on, you know, business intelligence implementations. Listen, it's a 30 page ebook. Um, I, I know it by heart throw, was there a particular question you had? Cause I can just direct you to the right page in the ebook. Yeah. Now you're, now you feel like being treated like gold. Makes and of course sense. they, dis they disclose that question and you just, you can just help them on the spot For sure. right into discovery. So yeah, it's, I guess as well, like understanding the user's uh, 
need at that point in time and not being too pushy, really just trying to be helpful, I guess, is what you're going back right. to, like the customer success component is all well, even in sales is important. So then we talked a little bit about the go-to-market fit, but I wanted to dive into a little bit more detail because uh, you talked as well earlier that this is sort of the stage where growth starts to happen. And before that, you don't really talk about growth. It's all about finding uh, that product market fit and making sure you're solving a problem for customers. But talking through the go-to-market uh, fit, like what is your framework that you like to put down to into a go-to-market strategy? And what would you say are the pillars of a good go-to-market strategy uh, sure. working with customers? Yeah. Sure. So just to like put a little more frame around the whole thing. So that product market fit, where again, we're just trying to create customer value correctly. The key decisions there are who's on the team, right? Because the salesperson at that stage is different than the go-to-market fit salesperson, which is different than the scale salesperson. Okay. Um, I, th- I would say the sales learning curve 20 years ago probably put the best literature around this. I know they called the scaling one coin operator. I forget what they called the first one. But the first salesperson is like a, a hybrid of a product manager and account executive. They have the, they have like the, the abilities like a product manager to like understand what the customer is saying or wants before the customer even knows, to aggregate the feedback, to deliver to engineers, like all that great stuff. But they have the, the ability of an account executive to ask for money, to handle objections, to move deals forward, to close business, right? They don't even need to be a rep that actually could hit quota. Yeah. That's not really, it's not really, you can understand what I'm getting at. And, and so we got to be really careful about like the onboarding process. We got to be really careful about um, like the types of customers we sign up. We do not want customers who are like, yeah, send me t- 10 case studies of other customers like that's not an early adopter we want the customers like i can't wait to tinker with this and like send you feedback like so those are the key decisions there if we're talking about our price optimization our compensation plan our sales process the wrong conversation at this point okay when we get to go to market fit remember the the point here is to get to unit unit economics that's where sales process comp plan and, um, and, and pricing model are critical. So is one demand gen channel, right? So those things weren't important before. Um, now they become critical, right? So what you're asking about is the sales playbook. And a good sales playbook has five components, five basic components, right? The, the number one issue I see with sales playbook design is most people will say, okay, now we have to build a sales playbook. Let's just build a pitch deck presentation. And so let's just document all like the features and benefits that we think our product does. And then let's arm our salespeople with this pitch deck and our website so they can tell everyone about it. And that, that basically um, teaches your reps to do what the industry calls show up and throw up. <laughs> it's like you, you come in and you pitch the deck and, and, and it's, it's great. The customer's like, oh, that was awesome. That was an amazing presentation. And you feel so good about yourself. You walk out, your boss, how the, how the sales pitch goes. It was awesome. We got through the whole deck. They loved it. They shook their hands the whole time and no one buys. Yeah. And it's because, I mean, if you've probably seen the data from on.io, but we finally have data on this that's been known anecdotally in professional sales forever, which is sales is about listening first. And Absolutely. the data shows across like tens of thousands of sales calls that in a first meeting, the top third performing reps in the industry talk 46% of the time. And in the first meeting, the worst third performing reps in the industry talk 72% of the time. But by building our, our pitch deck, we're teaching our reps to 
act like the bad reps, <laughs> right? So, so, so this is the, 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 every sales playbook needs to be rooted on a buyer journey, right? So ask yourself, like, look at your sales training and ask yourself how much of the sales training is about your product versus how much of your sales training is about your buyer. Most people are like, wow, a lot of our sales training is about how our product works. We don't have much on our buyers other than like we sell to real estate agents or whatever. You know, maybe yeah. some buyer personas, maybe, you know? So the, yeah, the buyer journey really, really documents how the buyer goes through the decision process before they even know about our product. So like, what are these, how are these buyers describing the problems? What's the words they use? And often we solve multiple problems. So like, which one, what are the different ones out there and how do buyers talk about it? That's the awareness stage. Then consideration is like how, what categories of solutions have they thought about? And then the decision phase is how would they make this decision? Like the cheapest one, who's involved, like all that kind of stuff. So we got to start with a buyer journey and, and I can share afterwards. I know Andrew, you're going to make some resources available. I can share some examples of that. And then on top of that, we lay the sales process, which is a prospecting guide. How do we get meetings? A discovery guide. How do we handle that first meeting in the, in the way that best reps do by listening, asking great questions? What's my, what are the different questions I want to ask there? A presentation guide, which tells me once I understand their needs, how do I pitch them that's tailored to those needs? And then a onboarding guide. So once we get them as a customer, how do we take them through the process? And the same way that the pitch isn't vanilla, like one, five, one size fits all, the onboarding probably isn't one size fits all either. Right? So those are, those are the five components, buyer journey, prospecting guide, discovery guide, presentation guide, and onboarding guide. And, and to have all of those as well, like I think what you're alluding to again is really like that focus, core focus needs to be on the customer, really listening. Like I think that's one of the early, actually funnily enough, worked in a sales a telesales company is one of my earlier jobs in my career. And uh, that was one of those aha moments, like when I was got on the phone for the first time, just talking, trying to make sales, and then realized like half the people in the room that are actually closing deals and making sales were the quietest in the room. And then it sort of hit on me. And it's like really like having that core focus on the customer and what are their pain points and listening to them and then getting to a yes is like, it's not about uh, you shoving things on the throat, but it's about getting them to say yes and listening to them as well. So uh, I love that focus there again uh, on the customer at the end of the day, like what are their needs and how does your product service the needs as opposed to this is my product and uh, buy it from me, buy it from me, sort of yeah. look at my kids, look at my kids type thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this stage in our right, so we hit the product market fit. We got a good product. Uh, like I, I really love the point as well about the salesperson at this early stage is almost like a PM with the kind of executive skills is, really the one sort of defending who comes into the product, making sure it's the right customer fit that's coming in, getting good feedback, feeding that back into product. Uh, you go into the go-to-market, now you're starting up to operational rise now, you're setting sales targets, you're bringing in uh, the playbooks and uh, working forwards. And then uh, the final stage in your model you've got, which is the growth and moat. Uh, can you talk us through this a little bit? You, you mentioned in the beginning sort of like the input metric for product market fits and then uh, go-to-market and just playing with the dials sort of, at this stage, like how big is the company typically? How many employees? Mm. Like, uh, mm. When do you start putting the... Yeah, I would say like people ask me a lot, like what's the approximate revenue? I think as we, if we do, if as an industry, we adopt these um, frameworks deeper, I think the revenue lines will get smaller. Like people will achieve these milestones quicker. 
But I think on average, like the product market fit is happening between half a million and a million. The go-to-market fit's happening between a million and two. And then we go into growth and moat. But the thing with the growth and moat is you basically, your product market fit and go-to-market fit usually um, is found in one product market channel combination, right? So like we have, we have product market and go-to-market fit with US-based mid-market companies with this particular product, our flagship product, selling through an inside sales team. Okay, that's, that's a product market channel combination. Yeah. And so as we move into growth and moat, um, we have to scale that, but we have to not like just assume that we can sell to enterprise businesses too, <laughs> just because we figure out the mid-market. Yeah. We, we have to assume that we, we can't sell through a channel program just because we figure out a direct sales team model. But so we have to, we'll scale up that as fast as we can based on the speedometer where we found it. But we also have to set up experiment teams with these other growth avenues. And again, an experiment could, team could happen in one of three areas, Pro, new product, new market, or new channel. So yeah, let's build this new product. Great. Let's have a small experiment team and start the process over and try to find that product market and go to market fit. And then we can add it to the scale uh, process. Or we want to try selling to the enterprise now. Great. Let's start a skunk team there and try that. Or we want to start selling through partners now. Yeah. Um, or we want to like a, a, a paid marketing channel. So great. Let's isolate that for a little bit and see, see if we can works. figure it out. So that's usually what's happening is here. There's actually some great work at Harvard Business School by a famous professor, Michael Tushman. It's called the Ampidextrous CEO and the Ampidextrous Organization. So uh, if your English is a little weak, ambidextrous means you can use your right, right hand and your left hand equally. You're not right hand or left hand. And what he's, the analogy he's making is um, uh, to be able to scale and learn at the same time. You have your scaling buckets and you have your experimentation buckets. And how do you run an organization that's good at both? That's essentially what has to happen at that stage. Very nice. Uh, and I like the points as well you made in terms of like the different fits, uh, product market channel, and really having a good grasp of those and being able to experiment in each one at different stages, um, enable you to get those next step changes in growth and avoiding that growth ceiling as well. I think that's almost inevitable in any business, uh, unless you're not doubling down on churn and retention as well. So sure. The, see, we're running up on time. I have one question I ask every guest. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on it as well, Mark, is that um, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. I know obviously uh, your days are gone and gone, but imagine you join a new company and uh, you've uh, joined this company. You see the churn and retention is not doing great when you arrive and the CEO has asked you to help turn things around and he's given quite a short of a tight uh, time frame. He's looking like to get some results in 90 days at least starting to move the needle in, in the right direction. What would be going through your mind and what would be some of the things you'd want to be doing in those first 90 days to try and help yeah. get some results for the company? And you, when you saying results, is the CEO line that results they're talking about, she's thinking churn there? Yes. yes. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so the big, it's a great question. I, and I, I've lived through this on many companies that I've been on the board or investor in. Um, the pothole there is to waste a lot of time on the existing install base, right? That's, that's the pothole um, because the existing install base, in some cases, those are what we'd call fool's errands. They're just a lost cause. And we actually, we fell into this pothole at HubSpot. I've seen a lot of companies fall into this pothole too. 
you know, these are companies that were signed up with a particular promise. They went through a particular onboarding process. They already have a perception of your business. And it's sometimes really hard to undo that. And so don't fall into that pothole. Really focus on the new customers. Yeah. It's a fresh start. And that, so, so that's step number one is whatever goals we're setting, set them primarily on the new customers. And that's where these early indicators of, of uh, customer success and customer attention are critical. Because now we can look at these cohorts to see if we're getting better. Okay, that's step number one. Step number two is obviously you don't give up on the install base, but you have to be very careful to uh, put them into strategic buckets. Like at this point, we've probably learned a lot of our business about our business because we have high churn. We were probably incorrect on a particular segment of the business that we acquired customers in. Hopefully, there are segments that are healthy. So let's identify what those are's are and have a healthy segment and track that churn differently and deploy resources there like have a have a, a pretty good like customer success manager to account level and then we have our b accounts and our c accounts and our c accounts are like if we had these if this entered our lead funnel today we wouldn't even call them yeah okay now we don't just give up on them it's just like you've got a pretty high customer success to account ratio there you may have me you may throw just one success manager in there and be like do what you can right and as you forecast you're like of the A's, we expect there to be a 90% retention rate, the B an 80%, and the C is a 50%. And then you could, you could run your model that way. And that's a much healthier way to think about you know, setting goals and, and showing results. Yeah, and I think it's all just like uh, deploying resources. I think that makes total sense as well, like making sure that your team is not just randomly trying to pick up and help everybody, but really giving them a focus and a direction, especially like at an earlier stage, maybe you're resource strapped, you don't have a huge customer success org or a huge sales org. And, giving them a focus on who are going to be these quality leads is, is really, really good and quality customers. Yeah. Um, cool. So, I mean, it's been, it's been a pleasure chatting today, Mark. I uh, see we up on time. Like, is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Any sort of uh, material they can keep up to date? I think obviously we'll add in the show notes a couple of the references you had today, but any final thoughts? No, not really. I mean, I'll send the material out. The, the way I've been codifying this is the science of scaling. Um, so I can send that ebook to me. It's a working document. So please, Hit me up on LinkedIn with any comments that you have so I can think about those questions and add to it. Um, these days, given like COVID and the crazy economy, uh, I've been basically talking about in the context of uh, the science of reestablishing growth, where, when, and how, um, which I think is a very important question as well that keeps coming up and the frameworks are equally applicable. Um, so just keep an eye out on, on, those, uh, on those topics. Absolutely. I think there was actually mentioned the reason why I reached out to you initially was a really great uh, webinar you held, I think, with Reforge, with Julian and Brian. Uh, we'll add that in the show notes as well. It was a fantastic uh, webinar. I really enjoyed that session, specifically around COVID and how do we keep growing in this, this stage in time. So, uh, Mark, it's been a pleasure having you today. I thank you so much for your time and uh, wish you best of luck now going forward and hope you stay safe. You too, Andrew. Thank you. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback 
by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.